Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. Hey y'all, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Tyrone Scott to Detoxicity. Tyrone is an entertainment and media attorney and music industry executive. Uh, he is a big, big deal. Uh, he is also a former podcast co-host uh, from the Brotherhood. I uh, used to host a podcast called Pop Law, which was about pop culture and entertainment law. So uh, Tyrone has a lot to talk about during this episode. We talk about his journey into becoming a lawyer, the fact that he is a singer, which I did not realize until we had this conversation, despite the fact that I've known him for a few years. Uh, we talk about his military upbringing and how that sort of informs the way that he is regimented. Uh, we talk about his relatively new marriage and how that is non-traditional. And we talk about mentorship and bringing others through the door that has that was open for you. And we just go off on a lot of different things. He is also a Beyonce stan, uh, as evidenced by the fact that he is catching two dates on the Renaissance tour. So stick around and you'll get to hear a little bit about him uh, fan gushing over Queen Bee. So uh, everybody, please welcome Tyrone Scott. So yeah, my name is Tyrone Scott. I am not a native New Yorker, as some people like to believe, because I have picked up the uh, New York attitude, <laughs> but just aligns with my personality. I come from a little bit of all over because my parents were in the military, so I don't really claim anywhere. When someone asks me where I'm from for ease, I just say Northwest Florida, but like I don't actually want to claim Northwest Florida or anyone who actually specifically wants to know where I'm talking about. This is where I graduated from high school. It is in the Panhandle near the Destin area for anyone who's vacationed in Florida. If you want to get a good sense of what it's like down there, the house representative is Matt Gates. So anyway, needless to say, had to get up out of there mm. and haven't lived there since I was 18 years old, except for a brief stint after college where I went back just for the summer to, to hang out with my mom. But uh, yeah, I've been in New York for the last eight almost years and moved here to work in entertainment and specifically music, but ended up starting off in, in television and graduated from law school summer 2014 and took the bar for New York at the end of that summer. And the day after I took the bar, I, was, I went to law school in Cleveland. I was still living in Cleveland throughout the whole summer. And the day I, I took the bar, I got back from Buffalo, New York, was the last day of my lease in Cleveland. So then immediately the next day, oh. I moved to New York City. Oh, wow. <laughs> Holy crap. So you're giving me a lot to work with right off the bat. <laughs> and it's funny because I was thinking this morning, I was like, I'm going to go talk to Tyrone. I feel like Tyrone is from New York, but I'm not sure because nobody's really like, I don't know very many native New Yorkers anymore myself, except for myself, essentially. So I guess there's a couple ways I can go with this. First of all, what was it like growing up in a military family going from place to place? I say this all the time and it usually comes up in interview settings, strangely, is that it made me very adaptable and resilient and for the fact that I can't really call any place home, home is wherever I'm living. Mm. So when people talk about going back, I'm sort of just like, 
oh, well, this where I live is home and I have family members who live in other places who I go and visit and sometimes they come to visit me, but home to me is not a physical location, which is very interesting because most people who I know in life, they have somewhere that they consider a geographic home. So just even go dig a little deeper into my background. We moved around not as much as some military families have and more than the average person, I would say, in terms of just like where I was born was in Arizona and we lived there for less than a year mm-hmm. and I've never been back to Arizona. And when we moved, we moved to Germany and we lived in Germany for a few years, which was cool because strangely enough, I was very young, but I still have some very linked memories of being in Germany when I was like three and four, particularly the food. I, I love food. I, I mean, it was just delicious food. What um, German... Germany, I'm really just thinking of like schnitzel right now. Oh, so interesting. So the company I work for now is based out of Berlin. And so I was back there recently. I was in Germany recently and we went to somewhere that was considered a German restaurant. And so we got into this conversation about what is German food. And then someone who was from Berlin was just like, honestly, a lot of what's considered German food is actually Austrian food. (laughs) There's not a ton of German food that is considered good in German. So obviously, most of the sausages you're thinking of are actually not even German in nature. Uh, Either they're Polish or they're Austrian. So yeah, the food I was eating in Germany was tasty, whether it was it from was Germany. German food or not. Was it German? I don't know. But I know I was eating good down in the neighborhood. Okay. So we were there for a few years, but then we moved to Indiana. So I lived in Indiana for a decent amount of my life. Lived in Florida, like I said. So being in a military family, you get used to being adaptable and you don't get too married to how you feel life is supposed to be sort of just like you make the best of your situation. Okay. I feel like some people are cool with living that way. I have spoken to other people who came from military families and they said that all the moving around made it hard to keep friends, for example. Was that a thing for you? I mean, you're also a little younger, so you have the benefit of having the internet and social media and all that stuff as well. Yeah. I would say that at, it's hard to a certain degree to keep friends, but I found that it sort of suits my personality and that I've never been one to have super close friends that I'm always in constant contact with. I have people who I've considered friends throughout my whole life and they're very good friends of mine and people I would even consider best friends, but... The way in which I do relationships, it is not one that requires constant contact. And like you said, social media really has helped and the internet has helped because you could sort of peek in and check in on people to get a sense of what's going on with them. And then even though I have friends who aren't super active on social media because of cell phones, I think people forget even just the advent of the cell phone. Let's not even talk about social media and the internet, just the advent of the cell phone and not having one line for a whole home (laughs) really changed the game honestly like to not have to be kicked off the phone because your sibling or your parents or someone else who's just physically in the home either wants to talk to someone or there's a business call or obviously when the internet did come along a lot of the times you didn't have a separate line so if someone wanted to be online AOL gonna Mm -hmm. kick you off Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I think Technology in general helped for me with establishing relationships that I didn't have to be in constant contact or even close physical proximity, which is actually sort of carried on into me as an adult. I don't have to always be in contact with people to feel close to them. Even my mom, I haven't lived in the same region as my mother. And I would consider myself very close to my mom. I haven't lived in the same region as my mom since, again, I was 18 years old when I was living with her. And we see each other sometimes once a year. Mm -hmm. But I'm talking to her multiple times a week. So like 
the, so the, the ways. <laughs> yeah, the physical proximity is an issue, but the emotional proximity is not because we now live in a society where, as opposed to when I was growing up, where you would have to pay, if you're going to be on the phone long distance with your mom, it's going to be like a $20 phone call. Yeah, <laughs> and even once you get to the cell phone age, it was like, how many minutes do you have? Yeah. Yep. Nights. Are we, okay, we only can talk nights, nights and, weekends. and weekends. That's right. That's <laughs> so, right. Really, I I don't know. I've lived my life in a very intentional manner, which is also translated to my relationships. So people know when I am reaching out and I am talking to them that it's not fluff. It's not let's just be on the phone while we going through our day. And you just want to have someone on the phone while you're at the grocery store. Right. It's like, if we talking, it's because I got shit to talk. Right. It's like, a real wanna, thing. Or I, or I, like, I'm checking in on you. Like, right. I want to know what's going on with you. I think there's a natural cadence to relationships. And sometimes one person may dominate the conversation with what's going on in their life. And it's not like they don't care about you. It's just the balance is such that they need a little bit more support. And so right. there's conversations where I call up someone not even expecting to give them an update on me. I just want to know what's going on with them and make sure that they're good. And next time, maybe we'll catch up and I'll give them a little about what's going on with me. But that's how I approach all types of relationships. Right on. The other thing that I notice about people that have come from military backgrounds, and I also say this with some personal experience because there are members of my family, both my mom and my stepdad were in the military, and I have other relatives that were in the military as well is that there is a level of, if this is not a word, please excuse me, (laughs) regimentedness, like a level of order that can sometimes border on almost like obsessive compulsive. (laughs) But the military is based on order and respect and chain of command and that kind of stuff. So there is a very regimented nature to things that happen in the military. And a lot of times that transfers away from the military and into the household. Uh, Mm -hmm. I guess, first question is, was that your experience growing up? And two, how tied do you feel to that now? Well, the first question, absolutely, that was a part of how I was raised and when we were growing up, particularly for the early parts of my childhood, at least up until, let's say, seven, eight up until that time, we actually were living on the military basis. So it wasn't like we had a house and then my dad would go to the base, whatever. He was in the army. Actually, both my parents were in the army. That's where they met. Okay. Uh, my mom got out earlier. So when you have two parents who are both in the military, there's a lot of order, as you would say. And uh, I think it shows up mostly in how we kept our home. It was very clean and Things weren't out of place for long, if ever. <laughs> mm. And there was a certain way we moved as a family unit. We did things on certain days at certain times. You didn't even question what we were going to be doing. Sometimes it's just like, it's Sunday. We get out of here at 930 to be at church by 10. And the whole rest of the day played out as it should. Same thing with Saturday. Saturdays was, all right, 7.30. You better not be in bed because we starting to clean this house. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad, when it was the warmer months, he headed outside to start working on the yard. And then my brother got old enough because I have an older brother. He would start heading out there with him. My mom, she'd be like, all right, everybody else, which bathroom are you taking today? Are you taking upstairs bathroom? Are you taking downstairs bathroom? All right. Okay. So who's going to vacuum? Okay. <laughs> so it was very regimented in that sense. And I would say that as I've gotten older and become an adult myself, that I still appreciate a clean household, especially having experienced different living situations with roommates <laughs> and stuff, and particularly in New York. Mm. And also just like these other places that I've lived in Indiana. Florida, even New Orleans, they weren't nearly as dirty of cities as New York is. So when I moved to New York, it was sort of just like, a, oh, y'all are nasty outside. <laughs> so <laughs> no shoes, absolutely coming in here. I don't understand and, that, Tyrone. It like- is 
and the, and the clothes walk. as well. It's like you wore them clothes all. You were on the train, <laughs> like you sat on fabric couches at your job, and you want to wear them clothes into your home, sit on your bed on all like no 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 no. This is how y'all get bed bugs. Because the cleanliness is not there. And obviously, bed bugs is not attached to actual cleanliness. I'm talking like you are not a clean person. So when people would normally remove their clothes or take off their shoes and discard them where they should be when they get home, you got people who are running to 10 different places all in the same outfit. And it's just like, you, bro, you were at the movie theaters for two and a half hours. <laughs> if you don't take them clothes off as soon as you get in the door and put them straight into the washing machine, like at the movie theater, at the Broadway show. Oh, God, Tyrone, <laughs> you're killing me right now. See, I am a shoes off person. I'm not really an outside clothes person. Um, oh, I've had to become, I, I feel it on me. It, and I didn't used to be that way until like, I really started to be a bit more social and be out and about that stuff and be in the same set of clothes for 16, 17 hours. And it's just like, get that shit off me <laughs> immediately. Oh my but, goodness. So I'm getting a little off task now. But the other, the other thing I wanted to mention though, was that how it shows up in my life is that the other thing I learned from being in a military family is to be able to do the hard things to get the results that you want. And that has showed up in all types of ways, whether it's been academically or professionally or just in my fitness goals, bearing down and doing something over a long period of time to get the results that you want. And just seeing both my parents, but especially my dad, having to go to PT, physical fitness test, and having to prepare and train for weeks for that, or just having to get up out the house at 5 a.m. because that's when your shift starts just a certain amount of discipline there that I think a lot of people, especially my age, lack to be able to perform at a high level or achieve excellent results because they sort of just be like, oh, this is hard. Right. And it's like, well, yeah. Lots of things are hard. I'm like, this is how Whitney Houston became who she was. Yes, there was some God-given talent, but that lady practiced and she had discipline. Yeah. And she was practicing for a long time before she became who she was yeah. even at the beginning of her career she still wasn't the Whitney Houston like she was practicing she disciplined herself she worked on those vocal runs she worked on her breath control all those things and I'm just like I don't know I feel like a lot of people my age especially are just so they want the success they want the notoriety but they don't want to put in any of the work and I, I do not say many nice things and this is still wouldn't count as a nice thing about anyone from the kardashian family <laughs> but i will say when kim was the wrong vessel she was the wrong person to deliver that message but she was not wrong because i see it so much in particularly the entertainment space is where you have a lot of people they don't want to actually put in the work they want to quickly gain a following on social media and then have the platform and get the brand partnerships and have the money coming in. And I'm just like, but you're not good at anything. What do you do? Well, right. quickly, right. name it. Oh, that's what I thought. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. As you were talking, I'm thinking about me being a huge Michael Jackson fan. And there was always this thing where Michael Jackson would practice dancing every single Sunday until he damn near passed out mm -hmm. because that was how he worked on his craft. That was how he perfected his craft and not saying you have to be no to that level. Not even it's just some modicum of discipline yeah. to push past when something becomes hard for you. And I, I just see so many of my peers and I'm just like, people may look at my career and be like, Oh my God, how'd you do this at 33 years old? And was already an executive in the industry. And it's just like, how that happened though. Your boy's working. He's sitting there when no one else is watching in the books, reading the trades, talking and networking with people. It's not always going to be out there on social media. What I'm up to. Sometimes you're just going to see, Oh wow. Like, He's on this panel and he's a subject matter expert on something that I've never even heard him talk about before. 
Yeah, because I've been working on it, <laughs> disciplining myself. So I wanted to draw the connection between my upbringing and how I show up today is the whole discipline of it all. So much respect for that. When did law come into the picture for you? So law came into the picture, strangely enough, from a pop culture stance when I remember watching The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and Carlton, one of the characters, strangely, when I, I remember I you- want to be like, if you don't know who Carlton from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is, yes. you probably shouldn't be listening to this podcast. Yeah, no. But... So sorry. Like, maybe just- <laughs> Maybe Just try another case. show. But yeah, right. strangely enough, no, he used to talk about Princeton Law all the time. Mm. And for some reason, that stuck in my head. Funny story, though. Guess who doesn't have a law school? Princeton. Um, Shit. <laughs> Say what? Yeah, I know, right? They're not the only Ivy League school. There's two other Ivy League wow. schools, I think. But yeah, really, I, I believe their only professional or master's level school is the Woodrow Wilson School of Public Affairs. So yeah, right? Because they, they don't have med school. Yeah, they just surprised me. Right. So anyway, it's something that I just remember I was of the age where Fresh Prince Bel-Air was new while I was a child and I was watching the episodes in real time as they aired. And it stuck in my head for a while. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my career or wanted to do for the career per se. For the longest, I thought I wanted to be a chef. And so I was actually sort of positioning my life to be where I went to the Culinary Institute of America when I graduated from high school and was on track to do that and sort of sidestepped traditional college. And at the last minute, I got scared and I was like, I don't want to do this. I want to go to real college. So when I got to college, I sort of was just like, Ooh, I don't know. I, I'm going to do something that is respectable. I'm going to be an economist. I'm going to major in economics and learn about money and money things. Hated it. Because I'm like, <laughs> was that a more practical decision or was it a passion decision? For to do economics? Economics, yeah. Oh, I didn't care about economics. <laughs> I told myself I did because I was just like, that's what someone like me should be doing. A very smart and intelligent young black man. Two years into my economics degree and I was like, get me out of here. <laughs> like, it wasn't bad the first year because I was doing well in it. And then the second year is when it got real. And I was just like, oh, intermediate micro, intermediate macro, econometrics, high level statistics courses, running regressions. <laughs> I was just like, oh, wait, so this is what I would do when I'm out of school as well? Like, I, no, oh, I don't want to do that. But I was so far along that I almost had finished my whole degree by my third year. And so what I ended up doing was adding a music degree. And so I ended up graduating with both an economics degree and a music degree. You go. Uh, thank you. Again, that economics was sort of just like, well, you completed all the requirements for it, but you ain't doing nothing with it. But because I started my music degree, I knew that I've been doing music my whole life. My father, he was the minister of music at every church we ever went to when I was a child. And I'd been singing since I was like five and was really, really involved with the singing group from early childhood all the way up through undergraduate, whether it was acapella groups or the university choral groups. I was composing choral music. I was arranging acapella music. So I was really, really deep into music. I just... And people thought that I was going to go to college and major in music. But I was like, no, nah, you're not going to tell me what I need to do. <laughs> and then because I ended up hitting my economics degree, I was like, well, let me just go see what they're doing over in the music building. Yeah, what do y'all got going on? And thankfully, because I had such a strong music background, I was able to just ease on by all of the requirements. Because again, I'm in my third year of college at this point starting a new program so I jumped right in and was able to basically convince the music department that, that I was like listen I'm not gonna be no theory one-on-one -on -one. see what I'm composing and they're like you right you right so, so were they to, just uh, starting you in an advanced course or were you actually getting I was starting an advanced course and they were also sort of just like you don't need to do these intro courses <laughs> let me tell you I finessed my way out of 
so much in college. Was able to finesse my way out of a bunch of required courses. It's a lot easier than people think. You just literally have to get the department head to sign off. <laughs> I mean, that, that does not sound easy, Tyrone. You got to figure out the right things to say. Needless to say, this is how I ended up in the practice of law because I just pay attention to the things that people say and the things that need to be said for you to get the things that you want. While I was in this music program, I was trying to figure out what I, because I still had no idea what I wanted to do with my career at that point. So I ended up taking a music business course and I had a professor who basically was just like, if you want to be in the music industry, one of the safest careers to have is to become an attorney because there's so few people who end up into the space that if you're able to successfully do so, that you end up becoming invaluable and sort of secure yourself a, a long-term career. So that is sort of where harkened back to the original Carlton go to law school idea I always had in my head, but I don't want to do like mergers and acquisitions. I don't mm -hmm. want to do real estate law. But it was one of the first times that I was like, oh, I could do law in the context of like music and entertainment. And so once that seed was planted, I was just like, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> so I sort of built everything about you going to law school around trying to set myself up to be successful in the entertainment space. And I tie this back to the conversation we were having earlier about discipline, where it's like, okay, you sort of switched gears and then went full speed ahead, went through law school, got your degree, started working in law, and now here you are. Feels like a very straight line. It wasn't? Okay. Man. <laughs> Do shit. Anytime I talk to someone about how I got to where I am with my career, they say, are you sure you don't want to write a book about this? Or mm. like, at least join an organization to like mentor people. <laughs> I'm just like, I mean, if there's an opportunity that aligns my, my schedule and availability, sure. Because my path to get here, it was anything but linear. <laughs> Starting just off with the fact that like, one of the things I've encountered a lot in my career is that when someone else hasn't done something or seen many people successfully do it, they tend to think that you can't. And so they feel like they're being realists or they're being helpful by trying to give you realistic goals or ways to approach your career. And it's not really what they think they're doing. It's actually sort of just killing people's dreams because mm -hmm. <laughs> they can't dream big that like they don't think they don't understand how other people can. And I don't think it's intentional. I don't think it's like on some hater shit. But I think they really just don't have the ability to think outside of something that they've never seen anyone else do or very few people do. So, you know, going even back to law school, like I would say I had a pretty good experience in law school. I didn't love it, but I, I learned a lot and I learned how to think like an attorney is what I'll say. But in terms of like the actual support that I was getting from my actual law school, like when I said what I wanted to do, which was to work specifically in the entertainment and media space, there was like a handful of people that actually believed me and even fewer that actually were helping me to try to achieve that. I went to school in Cleveland, Ohio, a place that has a national presence. It's not like in law schools or anything. It's a really good law school, but they, after people graduate from there, they tend to place them a bit more regional within the Midwest. So, you know, obviously the top 10% or 5% of people, they can go wherever they want to practice usually. But it's not a place where you usually would see someone graduate and then goes on to be vice president of business affairs at Warner or something like that. Sure. Which they did have a handful of people who did that, but they were such an anomaly that they were just like, yeah, he had a connection or like <laughs> someone. And I'm just like, well, I don't know anyone, but I'm still going to make it work. <laughs> so I would say that when I say it was not linear, it's for the fact that like I didn't have any prior attorneys in my family. I didn't have any entertainment people that I knew 
every connection that I have right now in the industry, I got it on my own. I applied to positions and I moved to a city where I didn't know anyone and just started it off on my own. Um, and, you know, even when I first moved here, I moved here right after I, I took the bar, moved from Cleveland. I didn't have a job. People think I moved here and I had a, an offer from somewhere. I moved here and I found my roommate. Me and him went to college together and he just happened to be moving to the city at the same time. And me and him have been pretty good friends and we did acapella together when I was in college. Um, so living situation was thankfully the easiest thing for me to figure out. But I didn't have a job in the entertainment space for the first four months that I was here. I was working as a cater waiter and I had just taken the bar and graduated law school. Wow. So I'm bussing tables out in Long Island for la mitzvahs. <laughs> so the level of faith that you had in yourself is super admirable. Were you like, I'm going to do this. It doesn't matter what I have to do to get there. I'm going to get there. Like just wondering where that sort of unshakable belief in yourself came from. Well, I think there, there were signals along the way that I was on the right path with the first one being um, when I got an internship um, at BET and I got that at the end of my first year of law school at a time when all of my peers had gotten really great internships at law firms, either within Cleveland or in New York or DC or wherever. And it was getting to the very end of the semester and I still didn't have anything and I was applying and I was really wanted to go work at a company either in Los Angeles or New York and their legal department for an entertainment company. And I just remember feeling so discouraged and I was had someone who I had done some volunteer work with who was just like, oh, I know one of the clerks down at the Cuyahoga County Court and I could get you to clerk for them for the summer. It wouldn't be paid, but yada, yada, yada. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm going to be stuck here. And I was <laughs> like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do anything related to this type of work. So it wasn't like this beneath me or anything. It was just like, I'm so uninterested in doing this work. That getting this type of experience will not help me reach my goals. And so... I just remember I, I one of the things that I applied for, I applied for like 40 things, was this internship at BET and in their content review team within their legal team. And I remember that they reached out to me and I had a phone call interview scheduled. And as far as I knew, I thought there was going to be like whole rounds of it. And I interviewed for it and I got the internship off of one phone interview wow and i was the only intern that they took and i beat out interns who were they interviewed in person in new york wow so that's when i say there was like markers along the way that's when i had an amazing experience working at bt and i had to move to new york that summer it was unpaid i had to figure out how to live off of like loan money from law school literally like three thousand dollars for three months in new york i had to stretch um but i did it i made it work and that's why i'm just when i talk about discipline and even yourself well, i really mean that shit. <laughs> and then i was my first summer and then my second year in law school i ended up entering a writing competition with the Recording Academy for law students. And I thought it was a long shot. I didn't even know any other person who had submitted a paper for this writing competition, but I worked really hard on the paper with one of my professors. It was an I wrote a longer portion, a longer paper that I adapted into a shorter paper for the competition. And I won the whole competition. I got to go to the Grammys. Like they, they flew me out. I got money. It, the top music lawyers in the industry when I won that competition. And so even that speed up a little bit to my story, graduated from law school, didn't have a job. Right. So I had those connections that they couldn't, as much as I wanted to be like, hey, come someone give me a job. It was just like, I'm fresh out of law school without a lot of skills. So there was things that happened along the way though, to let me know that I was on the right path. And bets that I was taking on myself when, again, like no one really believed in me except for like my mom. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's important to have somebody in your corner, um, yeah, yeah. but it's also important to understand that there is hard work ahead and to be motivated to do that work. 
Yeah. And even once I got my gig working at Viacom, I feel like everyone has a stint at, and he works in entertainment that where they worked at Viacom, <laughs> even if just for a year. Viacom is just one of those companies that they end up giving everyone a bit of experience to continue on their career. And I was there for several years, but I ended up continuing on to, because it was the ceiling there. I couldn't really progress in my career there. And the place I ended up going to next which was a, a digital company. It was such a mismatch of a hiring. It did not work at all. From day one, it was clear. And I, I really wanted it to work, but it didn't. And so, you know, that was the first time I'd ever been let go from a role. But I knew that I wasn't supposed to be there because when I got let go, I was so happy. <laughs> <laughs> the relief. No, literally, I remember the day it happened, I already knew it was building up to it. And I was just like, well, at least I'll get hopefully a package or something. Right. But I remember just going to the movies, like, after the conversation. I literally, I went to watch the new Blade Runner at the time. (laughs) And just in the middle of the day, Alamo Theater in Brooklyn, and I enjoyed it. But after that, though, I meandered in my career for a bit, and I did a bunch of, like, project-based work, and I worked in privacy space, and it wasn't in music. It wasn't in television. It was digital. It was working with law firms and things that were adjacent, but I wondered for a bit until really honed in on what I really wanted to do, and I was interviewing for stuff. But I also was like, I want to start really going down the path to get to the place I want to be long term in my career, which was music. And so I was really honing in on like the majors, if you will, for anyone mm-hmm. who knows music industry jargon, which is how I ended up working at Sony <laughs> with you and a bunch right. of other people. Yeah, how, how you and I met. Yes. <laughs> I was talking to a mutual friend of ours recently, mm-hmm. and it warms my heart to see people who are younger than me taking advantage of opportunities that are presented to them and really kind of in their best selves and, and moving up in the industry because I come from a space where Black men, particularly in the music industry, mm-hmm. kind of really just have one box to go in. Yeah, And that is not to say it's where it needs to be, but to see, again, people in our circle in spaces that are not just quote unquote urban spaces, see us doing like general things and representing in the room. It's heartwarming and it's a sign of progress. Yeah. And I, I don't know, I don't think of myself as being able only to work in certain spaces in the industry. So obviously my work has touched on hip hop and R&B, but I've done work on stuff for indie, like just literally singer songwriter guitar strumming artists and for Latin artists. I've worked in all different aspects of the space and I've never thought twice about it because I'm just like, the work is the work. Right, <laughs> like, right. If I can pro- do it well, why wouldn't you want to hire me? <laughs> With you there 100%. I got to ask because every single guest that I have on this show that is somewhere on the queer spectrum, I have to ask about the coming out story. Yes. So. It's not like a big dramatic anything. Which I love. It was something that I I knew from a fairly young age. And I, as a teenager, obviously grew up in a very Christian household. Told you my dad ministered music, yada, yada, yada. My mom's evangelist, yada, yada, yada. Um, it was sort of like survival because I knew exactly how the community that I I was raised in felt about queerness and gayness. So I was always able from a very young age to, to put things into context without just being solely fixated on how I felt. I was able to have empathy for others, but also just have different perspectives to strategize about how to like best set my life up for success. So I sort of knew early on, I was just like, okay, regardless of what you feel, you will not be talking about that to anybody in this household until you are up out this household. It's just not going to be the thing that is going to go well. And the way in which, particularly in Black households, they sort of like hold, I pay the bills. Mm-hmm. And this, that, oh, I'm like, okay, we're not doing any of that <laughs> while I'm under the roof. I need you to pay all my bills, provide all my meals. So that'll 
keep it cute, keep it on me. I'm like, I shouldn't be out here doing anything anyway with these boys. Let's just keep it simple. <laughs> so I, I knew from a teenage age that what, what was going on with me, it was just sort of like, okay, what comes next though? So it wasn't really until I got to college and I went to college in New Orleans and I didn't know a soul there. I didn't have any family in New Orleans. It was just me sort of getting to be who I was supposed to become. And that's where I got more comfortable with the idea of being a gay man. And it wasn't until probably the second, third year. Actually, this is weird. I gave myself this weird, like, ultimatum. Like, if you're not in a committed relationship with a woman by the time you're 21, you just need to go ahead and be gay, man. And on my 21st birthday, not only was I not in a relationship with a woman, I was... Was on my second boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> so you already knew where this story was going. I already knew where it was. And so it was a matter of just like, well, how does the rest of this play out? Right. And so because I was at such a very a liberal university in a fairly liberal city for the most part, no one cared around me. I was very supportive. There was no even coming out. They just started seeing me around men. Right. <laughs> and it was just like, okay, that's what you do. I said, sure enough. The more difficult portion, though, was when it was like my family and that was the one where it actually took quite longer because this is my early 20s in which I am sort of living my authentic life at least around people who are not my family it was not until my second year of law school where it just was becoming very apparent because it was clear I hadn't dated a woman in years and my family was still on some like, well, when are you going to settle down? And so the only person that I really felt like needed, I needed to like come out to was my mom. So I ended up writing her a letter during the, uh, strangely. So remember that competition, that writing competition I yes. told you about? Yes. I came out to my mom via letter during the holidays, three weeks before I won that competition. Wow. So a lot of emotions were uh-huh. And it was like not easy by any means, but I knew it was necessary. And I was, I'm a person who's just like, I have to sort of take my mind to like, what's the worst possible thing that can happen? And usually it's not going to be dying. And so it's just like, you can probably handle it then. And so I just thought it through and I was just like, the worst thing that can happen is she doesn't want to talk to you. And then you just keep on. You move on with, with your, your life. life. And so... I don't want to consider, I don't want to say I have this close, deep relationship with someone when there's like big glaring thing that I'm not sharing with you. So it's sort of just like, okay, this is what it is, sis. You good? No? You need time? Cool. Talk to you in a few months. Check back in with you. And that's really what it was. Okay. I was like, is that actually what happened? Okay. She just needed time. And not to say we weren't communicating during then because like she loves me deeply, particularly because I won that competition. <laughs> so was, there's press releases, your child's face is out there. You can find me on Getty Images. It was unavoidable. So it wasn't until like six, seven months after that we had like real, real conversation. And it was sort of just like, I don't know about your relationship with God, your salvation, your status with going to heaven, not in my business. So I'm just going to focus on the fact that you're my son and I love you. And that's where it's been. And now I have a whole husband and he checks in on my mom and they talk without me. <laughs> <laughs> I love I'd that like, though. I'd be like, oh, when did she tell you that? Because she didn't tell me. Oh, oh, okay. So she's going to be traveling. Oh, okay. I didn't know. I guess I'll reach out. <laughs> As you're talking... I have empathy for people who have grown up thinking a certain thing their whole life and then are challenged Mm -hmm. with something that hits really close to them that contradicts their beliefs. And as much as I'm like unconditional love, like blah, 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 you you grow up a certain way, it's hard for you to kind of change your thinking to be accepting of, of, things and people that you feel that again, you've been led to believe a certain thing about. So kudos to your mom for for being vocal and honest with you in terms of thought process that it took for her to get to a place of acceptance. And also kudos to your mom for being accepting. 
And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact her background with Christian church is Pentecostal Church of God in Christ, one of the most restrictive sects of Christianity when it comes to women. So he's coming from a, a sect of Christianity where women could only wear skirts, not supposed to wear makeup, women not supposed to be preachers. So I think she saw a lot of parallels in how lecture and the Bible have been weaponized against her because she got out of a sect of Christianity and she's a preacher now. She even pastored a church at one point and she realized you know, much of how we view certain things in society and communities is really cool and it's not biblically based and how you can quickly flip and weaponize any scripture of whatever needs you want and be like, well, that, that doesn't apply now or like, well, that's misinterpreted. I think she really grappled with that during that time when she and I weren't speaking that much. It's the fact that like she understands that there's just some things that people wouldn't put themselves through willingly sometimes. Like she knows me and the way in which I move through the world. Right. Just like if this is who he's saying he is, I'm guess this is not because he's choosing to go down a path of like hardship. This is how it's always been. Mm-hmm. And He's now just trying to get everyone on board so he doesn't have to bear the burden by himself. Amen. Amen. You mentioned a few minutes ago about your whole husband. (laughs) Not half a husband, a whole husband. And in my head, I'm like, Tyrone, you're too young to be married. A little bit of me is like, (laughs) but what was that process like? Deciding that you're going to jump the broom. Oh, it wasn't as difficult as anyone may think. I'm a very practical person and... I approached it from, there's no engagement, really. It was sort of like conversation of like, hey, so like, these are the benefits from marriage. Maybe want to do that, especially since me and my husband, we've been together for over seven years. So it was sort of just like, all right, what are we thinking here in the long run? Like, do we want to keep this going? What does it look like to be together at this juncture? At, you know, us having our lives so intertwined. And, but we don't really have the protections of marriage. So once we talk through it, it was sort of just like, this is where we are in our life. This is what we both want. We also don't want a wedding. And so we didn't have one. We got eloped. And it was like me and him situation. And it was exactly what we wanted. Beautiful, quaint ceremony in a garden in Lower East Side. And we know that people were going to have to ask about it. It was just like, y'all not living our lives. Was y'all paying the bills mm-hmm. for this magical wedding? Oh, y'all also was going to give us the stress, too, about how you wanted that big old thing to go down. This is silly. I've never believed in big weddings. Um, and also, we're not looking to get divorced, but we have very open lines of communication about like people may not want to be married forever. Right. People may not want to be together forever. And once we get to that point, if we do get to it, we'll cross that bridge and we'll have a very honest conversation about it. Because I know a lot of times people think like, oh yeah, you get married, that's it. It's like, people change. People change. And And you got to give people space to do that. And it's like, if we want to stay in this relationship for the long haul and continue to work on ourselves and make sure the way in which we live our lives and this relationship fits what we need at the time, then we can do that as well. And it's just, I hate to get any types of political, to give this man <laughs> any type of credit, but I think 2016 really sped up a lot of things in my mind. And then even more so 2020, like pandemic 2020, not so much the election, but the 2016 election and the pandemic in 2020, because just, life is just going by. And it's just something that I feel strongly about. And I want, I can just go do it. And if it doesn't work, I can do something else. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's a whole thought <laughs> right there. And I love the fact that you, I mean, and this is maybe projection on my part, that you were just like, let's do it. And you did it and didn't make a whole event out of it. Because with big weddings, I often wonder, is it serving the people getting married? From like an I love you and I want to have this moment with you standpoint? Or is it serving like an I want to show out kind it's of spectacle. It's really spectacle. And I'm not saying that's bad. Listen, anyone who out there, I went to your big ass wedding and you had an open bar. I enjoyed myself. <laughs> it was a it was a, 
a bomb ass time. Oh, but I also know it was spectacle. It was not about you too. And that has to be okay with that fact that when you have something that big, it is not about the two people getting married. It's about the spectacle. It's about the people that are there. And but that's fine. To me, I prefer to plan a different version of a party that doesn't have all the, that sanctimonious bullshit. I'd rather just have like a theme and like really nice clothes and shit. <laughs> I love that. We still may have that. Just invite friends and family to a party. Like that was something that we said we wanted to do this summer. Probably won't be able to do it this summer just because our life's not set up to be planning something like that right now. Also Renaissance. Yeah, so, so now you're broke, doing. basically, is what um, you're saying. <laughs> hey, no, there's money in the bank. It's just like, I already let everyone in my life know that whenever Beyonce did her next thing and two weeks into the pandemic, I was just like, oh no, <laughs> I'm signed up for whatever she does, does. next. I was, hopefully I like it. And thankfully I loved it, but I was like, I'm, cause I feel like she's going to retire. So she that's why I'm sort of like, I feel like after this tour sure. and I think she's going to have her last child. And I think that we're not going to see her for several years. And so that's why I feel really strongly about going to see her perform on this tour, because I think this is prime and not to say she can't perform again, but I think this is like, like she's going to go sit her ass down somewhere and be somebody's mama. Like she wants to be. Ain't rich. nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like Beyonce took a lot of people's summer budgets. Listen, I summer is flanked by two separate tour dates. <laughs> And I'll be present at both. And they're not in New York. So just know I'm traveling. Oh, damn, Tyrone. So that's airfare plus the concert ticket and hotel. Yep. Yep. So, but like, again, I had a Beyonce budget for the last three years. So that's not even affecting like my real money. Oh, (laughs) God. Because I knew this was going to come. And people was like, them ticket prices. I didn't even blink. I was like. What do you take? Visa? Oh. American Express? I don't know. Oh, oh, we need to do City Card. Okay. Swipe. <laughs> yeah, I saw those ticket uh, prices and I was like, whew. But I already knew, like, I didn't get Madonna tickets. I didn't get Janet tickets because I knew that this tour was coming. And I was like, $300 here, $300 there. It starts to add up. And so I was just like, you know, I love all of these performers. Even Gaga, I didn't go to her tour. And I love that. I like getting a little off topic, but I have like super wide range of taste in music. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give you your typical black gay man. Like I love Beyonce. Like I also love like, you know, Chromatica. And I thought that was an amazing pop album. I was like, this is how you do pop music. And I really love like Kim Petras and Caroline Polachek. She just put out an amazing album. That is my favorite album right now. So you know, all of these types of artists, I've, I'm checking for them when they're touring and stuff and wasn't in the budget for a lot of them. Um, but, you know, I'm going to get to see Ari Lennox. I loved her last album as well. Um, and this group Flow based out of the UK. It's uh, three women and the artist M&E-K is. He writes almost all of their music. Really? And you can tell he has a very distinct writing style. Um, and so they have all of the harmonies. They're great live singers, but they have a concert at Webster Hall, I think in April. Tickets for like $30. So you just have a very wide taste range, taste in music. But when it comes to Beyonce though, <laughs> all that, bits is are one, that is the one where I'm just like, she, to me, is the best live performer that I have ever seen, like ever. And that's not to say that there's not other concerts I haven't loved. I love when I saw Jasmine Sullivan after she put out reality show in 2015. That was amazing. I saw Irving Plaza. So there's there's other shows that I feel strongly about. But when I think about people who have really did how I think about what a performer could be, and honestly, this actually came up on International Women's Day when they were, we were talking about it at my job, about like women who inspire us. And it sounded cliche, but I said Beyonce because that whole thing about, I used to be a podcaster too, so I know I'm bringing it all around. When we started talking to me about Terry Brackman upbringing and discipline, Beyonce is such a good example of someone who is so disciplined to become good and excellent at her craft. And I look at her and sometimes I'm just like, I'm not going to ever be at the level of her in terms of how hard that I go. 
But like when I'm having my rough days, I think it's about how you watch any of the behind the scenes footage, or even if you watch the Beachella homecoming documentary on Netflix, it's, there's such intentionality behind how she prepared for that show. And you can see it in everything that she does, but mm-hmm. that influences me so much because I'm just like, there's no reason you can't push through to like figure out how to draft that type of agreement that you've never drafted before. You have the basics, you have the elements down. Just go do a little research, go ask someone, go sit in on a seminar, go sit in on a panel or something where they're talking about this thing. So you can learn more about NFTs and Web3. I use that as inspiration to people. They don't see the parallels, but I'm just like, it's discipline. It's wanting to become excellent and an expert at what you're doing. I 100% agree with that. And so many things I could say about that last monologue. I think Beyonce to people of her generation is what people like Michael and Janet were to my generation. And I'm not saying that necessarily the same type of artist. I tend to run a little bit warmer and colder on Beyonce than some (laughs) other people, but I have a great deal of respect for her talent. And I have a great deal of respect for the work that she's put in since she was a little, like since she was in elementary Mm. school, she went through boot camp. She holds herself to a high standard of quality and works to make sure that, that that standard of quality is met and exceeded. So I have a lot of respect for that. And then to see that, and then to model your own work after that, I think is super impressive. Because I don't know that there are a lot of people out there who set a high standard for themselves and then try to achieve it, particularly in a professional context. I mean, look, I don't even do that. <laughs> I think if certain contexts were different and I was maybe a little bit younger, I'd be more in that bag. But there are things like this podcast and you know, other things that I do in terms of like work where I want to put my whole foot in there and I will work as hard as I can to achieve a desired result. And I think, you know, when you win at things like that, not to say that there's always a win or a victory, but it feels better because you, you put your heart and soul into something. Yeah. And I think that there's something about when there's a struggle attached to your success. And it's not to say that you always need to struggle to succeed or to to appreciate your success, but when you have had to struggle and you are able to get to the other side, you know, you just have such an appreciation for where you are. And I talk back to me being a cater waiter and literally had I found out still after I had passed the bar and had to have a job in the New York bar. And this was before they went to the easier <laughs> universal bar exam. So this was a universal bar exam for those who don't know is a bar exam that it's, you can take in a, a bunch of states. And if you pass it with a certain score, you can practice in any of those states. Oh. At the time, New York, they still had their very specific New York bar exam that you only could take in New York. And I passed it on my first try, like amount of black people who passed that bar exam was like less than 20%. Yeah. I mean, for old people, the bar exam is what John F. Kennedy Jr. failed twice. Yes. Hillary Clinton, she had to take it multiple times too. It's like, I had found out I passed the bar exam and I still, that same day, I had to put on my little tux, run down to, I want to say, was I working on the um, the Intrepid? feet my dogs barking i had an event that i had to cater so it's just like i look back to those times or when i had to make one meal a large batch of something stretched over like four or five days mm-hmm. put it in the freezer whatever you need to do throw a little hot sauce on it add some some scallions some chives make it different <laughs> so when people look at me now and they see from places i've worked and the people who i've worked with it looks impressive and i get that but it's me you don't understand just the fact that i was able to navigate this when no one was believing in me and look back on the relationships that's why you know new friends type of person but i pay attention to the people who are there when i didn't have the success or you know, my name wasn't out there like it was or this wasn't you know, out in the zeitgeist because like because of you know where i currently work and the the things that i've done like you know people they me up on linkedin want to connect and just want to get my input or whatever i still get back like i'm always trying to leave the door open for particularly black attorneys to come after me in the entertainment space and when i can advocate and 
put my two cents in. I'm always going to do that when there's opportunities that I see at other places where I have friends now because I'm at the point where my friends are now running legal teams and I can call up such and such over at Warner and be like, hey, this person's applying. You really need to look at them. Like, you need to trust me on this. And so I really am making sure that I leave the door open you know, and that's something I'm really proud of too. It's like, I really wanted to make sure that I got more people of color, particularly black people, particularly black mm-hmm. queer people mm-hmm. in the door. So something that I think about when I think about the struggles of my career. And even though I know sometimes in this podcast, you touch on like malinity and stuff and your expression. Like, I remember even when I first started off at BT as an intern, like, I tried to present in such a masculine, neutral way because I had no clue of the environment I was walking into. Sure. Now, mind you, I was down at the gay bar just like everybody else after work, but it was still like, I don't know, so new in this industry that I can't risk getting shut out just because of like stupid homophobia right. at the jump of my career. And so that was something that I was very, very mindful of probably for like first three to four years of my career until I got more comfortable in myself and my career be like listen if you're in spaces where these people are homophobic then you don't need to be there and if you can find somewhere else to like your way into the ecosystem like yeah. where it's not just gonna be blatant ass homophobia yeah. you know, obviously some places you keep more to yourself you don't tell all your business but i should not be anywhere where there's blatant homophobia <laughs> At this point in the music industry, you absolutely should not be. I feel like even the most ignorant people know better. And even if there are people that don't, there are places you can go where there are people that do know better. But you do bring up an interesting point about code switching that not only not only that we have to do as Black people, but that we have to do as queer people in mm-hmm. these spaces. And this is something that's been on my, on my brain for a really long time. And it's kind of like, how do you figure out like who you are when there isn't really a place where you can fully be yourself? Right. I would say that I've learned how to express different, not different versions of myself, but different parts of my personality with different sets of people. So I don't have to show up 100% as I am with every single person. And that's okay for with me because it's just like, okay, maybe you and I don't like get to talk about all like queer shit, but like you connect on like black shit. And this for some of my queer people who aren't people of color. Like maybe we don't get to talk about all the black shit, but like you can talk about like the queer shit. And I figured out like everybody doesn't have to be everything to you. And and I've I've gotten comfort in that, in that you have different people in your life for different reasons and different things and different purposes. So the code switching, it's its not something I'm turning on and turning off. It's just like, I don't even connect with you in that way. So that's not something I'm going to bring up or I'm not going to talk about just because that's not what we don't relate to right. each other. That's not what our way. relationship is based on. Right. And you know, for the people who don't hit any of those categories or communities that I'm a part of, professional. Like, I'm going to be who I am without going into depth on these other portions portions or parts of who I am and just like lean into being like a regular charismatic funny self <laughs> instead of giving you like the jokes that only the queers will get or the jokes that only the black people will get right you know? big big shout out to Tyrone I've been after Tyrone to do an episode of this podcast for a long time at least a year might even be two and he finally agreed to do it and I am so so grateful to him for sharing his story and for being an inspiration um, you can find Tyrone on Instagram at Mr. Doublethink. I don't think he has much of a social media footprint otherwise, but, uh, yeah, again, Tyrone, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for being so real and honest. I hope that you enjoy your newlywed life and I hope that you enjoy all those concerts that you have coming up. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, Follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as DetoxPodGuy. Uh, You can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. 
I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill, or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, Rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings. Uh, Follow me on social media. Like I said, uh, follow our Patreon or subscribe to my Patreon, actually. Patreon.com slash DetoxicityPod. You get access to exclusive episodes. You get episodes a little earlier than the general public. You get a cool-ass sticker. Lots of stuff. Once again, Patreon.com slash DetoxicityPod. Quick shout out to Calvin Williams for providing the music and uh, doing his magic on the logo, which was originally designed by Jacob Block. I thank you all for listening. I wish you all the best. Please take care of each other. Till next time. Peace.